Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to a Thanksgiving week close reads. I am David Kern and I am joined as always by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim, how is it going this Thanksgiving week? <laughs> it's, going, it's going great. Terrifically. It's going terrifically. So I, I want to tell our listeners that a little while ago, Tim's mom hijacked the microphone and that was awesome. She's great. And I, I think she said she listens to this show. You're great. <laughs> she in, she, she in expectation it, of her reply. Thank you. <laughs> she, I'm she, not going to hold it against her that she birthed you or anything. She, she <laughs> was awesome. <laughs> wow. Angelina is bringing the big guns out. <laughs> she is. I feel like because I'm the lone mother in this group, like I can get away with that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, probably. Um, <laughs> also the lone daughter. Oh, that's right. So lone Niece? Wolf. Huh? Lone niece. Wow, how far can we take Aunt? this, David? Okay, yeah. Well, are you, I'm are you with long Aunt hair. Yes? What's are that? You in, do you have nephews or nieces? I do. Yeah. The lone aunt. Tim, do you have you have nephews and nieces too, right? No, I don't. I have I have none. None of my siblings have reproduced. Well then I am the lone uncle. You're the lone wow. uncle. Look at the self-restraint I just made about jokes about Macintosh is not reproducing. <laughs> What would the joke have been? Oh, I don't know. It would have been amazing. Just trust me. Like everybody be laughing so hard right now. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to change instead, the subject. Now. Instead, I'm going to go for the meta joke. Like everyone should just laugh about the fact that they would have laughed. We're going to be super postmodern. This is my postmodern joke. <laughs> should I tell my bad timing joke? <laughs> Do we um, have to listen to pro- that? Again? Probably not. Probably not. Okay, so um, I told a joke earlier that was terrible. Um, and it, we did get it to make fun of my dad's sense of humor. Reader's digest. Yeah. Absolutely straight up at a Reader's Digest. We did get to make fun of my dad's sense of humor, though. So that, <laughs> that did come out of it. Well, we are here, speaking of sense of, senses of humor, to talk about Twelfth Night, uh, Shakespeare's play. <laughs> the tragedy, Twelfth Night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We will be uh, talking about it throughout the course of December. The last episode on Twelfth Night will be December 29th, I believe, when we do the Q&A episode. So um, the first episode... This will go up on November 24th, Friday, November 24th on Act 1. So we'll do an act a week until the Q&A episode. Um, there is, we will not be able to talk about everything that can be talked about in, in an act of a Shakespeare play in an hour or whatever it is. This is always obviously the problem with, with this show. It's just, just only so much time. Um, there are also a lot of different ways you can approach Shakespeare. So I want to talk about that for a few minutes. There's also differences between how you approach Shakespeare um, in a classroom compared to how you're going to approach it on a show like this, where you're just kind of talking about books you love. So those are going to be some differences that I think are probably going to get brought up. Angeline and Tim each have their own preferences and approaches and interests um, in in Shakespeare. So we'll probably go ahead and ident- identify some differences and some common ground. And, and this particular series is going to be, um, you know, the kind of match where loser leaves town. So <laughs> 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 
and also I have a cold in my chest, so I'm going to be coughing a lot, particularly when one of the other people speaks. So just bear with me on that. So I apologize in, adv- in advance. Angelina, if I cough when you're talking, <laughs> it's not because of what I think you have to say is terrible. It's just that I can no longer hold it. Oh, oh, I know how subversive you are, David. Every time I get going, you're going to be like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take that as my cue to... Angelina, there's turmoil, there's turmoil in, in my chest and it has to get out somehow. And so sometimes the cough is going to be how it has to happen. I can't control but if this the was a Shakespeare play, it would be thematic turmoil and it would be very intentional. So, clearly, it, I am not Shakespeare. Um, so let's, let's start. Okay, I'm my- so glad, by the way, I'm so glad that we're going to talk about... Um, you know, sort of the the limits of the show, if you will. And limits is not the right word. What, what, what am I trying to say? Like the, the, the purpose, of the context of the show, right? Because, um, you know, each of us are teachers. Each of us are readers. Um, or a few other things as well. Um, Friends. But yes, well, <laughs> that remains to be seen. <laughs> but, at, the, at the at the outset of this show, we're friends. <laughs> but um, but. But yeah, like, so, you know, originally when, when we talked about doing, doing a podcast, you know, I had to make some decisions in my own mind as we all did about like, what would this show be like? And, you know, and so one of the things that I've enjoyed is that the show has been this sort of casual, um, conversation among friends about books that we love or find interesting. And it's very, very different than I would approach any of these books as a teacher. I'm like super hyper aware of how different I talk about books on this show as opposed to, to the way that I might teach them. So I'm, I'm glad we're going to have this conversation. Yeah. And I think that probably like Tim maybe approaches teaching books, maybe a, maybe drifts a little more towards the <laughs> casualness of, of our conversations. But you know, I, that's one of the things I like is that each of us, especially each of you two who are very experienced teachers, you're much more experienced than I am, have ways that you've been teaching for a long time and and ways of interacting with students and interacting with the material that are different. And so one of the things I'm interested in with Shakespeare in particular is, especially in terms of approaches to Shakespeare, um, what is the common ground between the two of you? And and then, yeah, what is the differences? And like, we don't need to argue about you know, is there one that's inherently better? That's not. And really, I don't think that there is one that's inherently better. Like one of the things that I tell people when they come to me, you know, in, in angst about how do I teach, you know, whatever work of literature, you know, almost always my starting point is, well, you, you have to be you, right? You have to teach to your strengths. I mean, teaching literature is different than teaching something else because we're dealing with a work of art, right? And part of what we're trying to express to our students is a sense of wonder and love about the art and how to experience art. And that's obviously a personal thing, um, but but also it's incarnated, right? It's rooted in a person. And, and so I don't think that there is one right way to teach. I think that every teacher must play to their particular strengths. I think Tim and I have very different strengths and i'm not ready to say one is better than the other i mean obviously mine is better but i'm not ready to say what is better How did than i know the other. that was coming <laughs> i'm not ready to say one is better than the other i mean you know i would do a terrible job teaching to tim's strengths he would do a terrible job teaching my strengths i mean you know this is this is sort of the intuitive nature of teaching right we all have to be who we are and yeah. and 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 that's best. You know, like, so for example, people will, I bet Tim gets this question. I bet you get this question too. People will, will ask me like, what are the books that I need to teach? Right. And my answer is always teach the books you love, right? Like that's seriously more important than some, some list, right. That doesn't have any relationship to you. Like don't force yourself to teach books you have no interest in teach what you love. That is students will get excited about that. They will learn how to love something by watching you love it. So, There's so, certain- you know, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I thought you were. Go done. ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. I am definitely done. Go ahead. It's, it's the it, there was a lag there in my in the audio for me, so there was like a moment of silence, and then I realized you it was just the computer had stopped, not you. Because my mouth works faster than computers. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is there is definitely a difference between saying should you read a certain book and should a student learn a certain book and should you be the one to teach that book. Absolutely. Like yeah. my dad, um, loves. Uh, Homer, he like he, he would teach Homer and read it till you know till the he will teach it till the day he dies. I probably should teach it, but I'm not capable of being a great teacher of Homer right now because partly because I haven't I don't have the affection for it that he does. So I couldn't be quite as good a teacher, I don't think, as he could. That's kind of neither here nor there. But those are different questions, and I think that that's a valuable point that you're making there. So okay, here's here's my question as we kick off the conversation, Angelina. When was the last time you read Twelfth Night? 
Oh, it's you, been several years. But you're right. I actually, when we first, the funny thing is when we first started talking about this, I twice, twice said to you guys, oh, I've never read this. I'm so excited. And then I picked up the book and I was like, I have totally read this. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, what about you? It's probably a couple of years ago. Okay. But you read it, what did you say? You read it a couple times at I least? I think two, maybe three. Okay. Yeah. And I've yeah, only read it one time. I read it out loud to my kids a long time ago. Okay. And for me, I, it's been quite a while. I mean, I read it in school. I saw them, like my family watched the movie fairly regularly when I was a kid, at least three or four times, you know, when I was in high school and then uh, I read it for school. So it's been, but it's been quite a long time, probably at least five years since I've been in touch with this play at all. Um, so I think that that's going to be, it's gonna be fun to be reacquainted with it. Let me ask you this question then. Do you have a certain uh, version or series of versions that either of you tend to gravitate towards in terms oh, of wow. Shakespeare plays in general? Tim, do you? Sh- uh, versions. What do you mean, David? Um, like, okay. So for example, I have, um, I'm a first folio gal. <laughs> I don't uh, really mean that. I don't really mean the, the like the original folio. I, I knew you didn't mean that. <laughs> so I have the Pelican came out with, um, well, the uh, Folgers some, edition. Well, they have some new ones, the Pelican Shakespeare, um, which have you know the reason I ask is because they, yeah, there's different formatting and different things like that, but there's different versions that have different introductions, different notes that focus on different things. So like yeah. I have the Modern Library recently came out with a series of them that they did with the Royal Shakespeare Company, but some of their notes are a little bit like they're clearly focusing on like adult themes in Shakespeare. Like they really are concerned with adult themes. But then if you look at the, um, even some to the point where I think sometimes they're over reading things that aren't there. Um, and then you look at the Pelican Shakespeare that Penguin does. Um, and that's got like a whole different set of interests. And so I like having, like I kind of read both because they kind of balance each other out. So I was just wondering if there's a particular one that either of you like the most or that, like if you're looking for a new version of Coriolanus say yeah. that you're going to gravitate towards that edition. I do have an answer for that, but I want Tim to go first. I love the Folgers editions. I just think they're lovely. I, I have two complete Shakespeare books at my home, and I have about maybe a half dozen Folgers series. I just love the Folgers series for two reasons. The notations on word clarifications and definitions are at the bottom of the page, not at the end of the book. I just It drives me crazy to have to turn to the back to the end of the book in a Shakespeare plugs, there's so many words that I don't know. And I also tend to, they really get really great commentary slash essays. The one they did on Hamlet is one of my absolute favorite. Essays like introductory essays. Yeah. Yeah. An, an, an interpretive essay. Okay. So Angelina, what about you? Okay. So I, I, I just go to my go-to book, the Riverside Shakespeare, which is the one I had in, in college. Fantastic introductory essays, fully annotated. That's just, it's just, is that one large book? It's a huge book. Okay. So it's like all on tissue, the play. Like on t- it's everything. It's every okay. sonnet. It's everything. It's got all these essays. I mean, it's the scholarly edition, but I also recently discovered that, you know, my mentor, as I've spoken, I think probably about on this show before, Burton Raffel, who is my professor in college. So he did a series of annotated Shakespeare editions, like paperbacks, with Harold Bloom. And so uh, I did order one of those just to see what it was like. So I ordered The Taming of the Shrew, and I loved it. So it's fully annotated with the annotations at the bottom, like Tim was saying. And it's got an introductory essay by Burton Raffel, and then a Shakespeare essay by Harold Bloom in, in the back. And I, I have been really impressed with the ones of those I have seen. We should do a close reads on Harold Bloom sometime. We could have so much fun with Harold Bloom. Like just start reading scholarly essays and close reading them. Yeah, just like do uh, for the Patreon people. Yeah, yeah. I have mixed feelings about him. We could get totally controversial. Me too. I have. Oh, I'm so relieved to hear you say that. Like I'm like, oh, he's really great. Oh no. No, like seriously, I just I have a book by him on Shakespeare that I'm like, did you read the same plays as me? (laughs) (laughs) So, my favorite version, like I realized recently that that it has a lot to do with the layout. (laughs) (laughs) Always, always, you David, where the words are on the page, and I'm all like disembodied ideas and. Yeah, well, because like the new, in 2016, the Penguin ones, they have this new series and I'm totally obsessed with the book covers. They look like, they're supposed to look almost like a ticket like a, or like a playbill 
or whatever you call that. So yeah. they look they look really beautiful. And then the layout of them is both like classical and easily readable with notes at the bottom of the pages. And then the Royal Shakespeare one's got one where it's like I've got a lot more space between the lines, which makes me feel like it's going faster. Like those kind of things mess with my head a lot. So I when I read Shakespeare, because of the way it's broken up, it's just different than what I read a lot of the time visually. Like I have to get my head around it. Because you know, when I read a novel or whatever, even an epic poem, the blocks of text are so different than the lines. In a, mm-hmm. And so I, it, for whatever reason, like that sense, like the senses, a sense of sight, like I have to really get into that rhythm. So what it looks like on the page uh, matters to me. It's, it's completely superficial and really dumb, but I can't be I the only one out there. I don't yeah, think I, I'm not ready to say it's dumb. I mean, I think people's brains work differently. I'm, I'm a very visual learner. So the way th- words look and the placement on the page is actually very important to me and spacing and the paper and just like the whole yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If it, the, the print's too small and I feel claustrophobic while I'm reading it. So I don't, I don't, I, I think that there really is something to that. I, I don't, I don't think you should dismiss that so easily. Oh, thanks, guys. I feel better about myself now. <laughs> okay. oh, by the way, so the editions I was talking about, they're put out by Yale Yale University Press, if someone's looking for those. Okay. 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 Well, the, I mean, there's lots of different versions. So if there's a version that you, and you're, you're listening out there and you love a version, we're not like saying read ours. We're just, it's just, it's just a point of conversation. Okay. Just make a point to read it in the original language. That is my <laughs> yeah, only exactly. thing. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to be a stickler about that. <laughs> I know Tim thinks very differently than I, but I'm just a fan of the original language <laughs> so you don't want to read the russian translation of hamlet you know as as good as i am in russian i just feel like you got to be true to who will shakespeare is yeah yeah i like that you and will are on first name basis does well, he call you because totally. we know he calls you angie <laughs> Dave. you know it is kind of i think it's not outlandish to claim that shakespeare might be He's top three, at least, of the world's greatest poets, and maybe he's the greatest of all time. He's goat. He wrote in our language, and that is wonderful. You know, I think Dante is probably there with him. Homer is probably there with him, and he wrote in our language, and that is one of the accrued benefits. Not an accrued benefit. That's one of the benefits of being born into this language you get to read shakespeare one of no, the that's thing- absolutely true and and he elevated the language you know we uh, we forget yeah, because we're post shakespeare right we're, we're post shakespeare we forget that you know it was a big deal for milton to write in english it was a big deal for chaucer to write in english right this was not the scholarly language this is not what art was done in right and so yeah. he elevated the language he really made it into something it's you know it's shakespeare and the king james bible they give us english right mm. and he, he elevates the language. One thing the way that I love about Shakespeare is the way he synthesizes um, the the sound of the language and the I don't know what the other exactly what I was going how I was going to put this, but like he, the music of English comes alive in Shakespeare in a way that it didn't quite the same pre Shakespeare. I th- I think anyway, but he also gets to get, he also plays with the language through the metaphors and images that he uses in a way that I think no one had done before. And he like harmonizes those ideas in the, s- the same time. Like, absolutely. I mean, you kind of have to study the history of English to kind of realize just how new English was and what happened to it and how you lost English for a while because of the Norman invasion and French becomes the dominant language. And so English is no longer written and it loses its grammar and blah, 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 you know, the whole story. And then it comes back. So uh, you know, it really is an achievement to have made English a, a beautiful language. I mean, at the time of Shakespeare, English is not formalized. Spelling's not formalized. He just made up words when there wasn't a good enough word, which is why when my students get all, you know, poetic with their language, I just say, hey, you're being Shakespeare. Welcome to it. You know, if, there, if no good word exists, make one up. <laughs> Speaking of Harold Bloom, you, you and he may disagree on that point. Um, <laughs> knowing, knowing Harold Bloom. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, I guess let's just quickly cover some some ideas about approaching to sh- approaching Shakespeare, um, particularly I guess let's just quickly cover in the classroom. So, Tim, I know this is like there's some there's going to be some common ground and some differences here. So Tim's going to approach this. He's a theater guy. He's a playwright, a director. He's acted all that kind of stuff. So he's going to approach it that way. Angelina, I suspect you're going to approach it 
from a little bit more of a, the literary scholar perspective. Would you say that's true? I would say that that is true. So let's... I mean, I have all the melodrama of an actress, so I could see why you might be unsure. <laughs> so let's... Okay, let's, let's, let's take a hypothetical situation and let's think classroom just for a second because I think that's just a good place to start and then we'll shift gears towards the show. Is that, we, is that cool for both of you? That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So Angelina, when you're in a classroom... What are the things that you're primarily going to focus on? Okay, so I think that one of my gifts as a teacher is to take this C.S. Lewis idea that you, you have to have the right mental furniture to be able to understand a book. Like, so I'm, I'm big in wanting my students to be able to fully enter into the experience of a, of a work of art. And sometimes that means that, that I have to help you get over your modern assumptions. And so even something as basic as Shakespeare's gonna use words a little differently than a modern will, right? It's gonna mean something different to him. Um, but also like they're working with a different set of cultural metaphors than, than we're working. So, so I would not say that I give necessarily the historical context approach because that, that can be very reductionist, right? Where you're trying to say, oh, this is a reference to this political leader and you're like trying to one-on-one -on -one match things up kind of thing. That's not necessarily what I'm doing. Um, I'm trying to help my students be able to enter the imagination of the world that's presented, right? So when C.S. Lewis talks about you have to read Homer like in a key in chief, right? Um, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help my students be able to grasp like the Renaissance imagination, the Renaissance sensibility. Uh, so, so what I'm going to do as a teacher is I'm going to try to identify the Renaissance metaphors, the way that the Renaissance man thinks about the world, because Shakespeare is very much a Renaissance man, um, and, and he's doing some really interesting things with, with the established metaphors. And so I, I, try to, I try to give my students all the mental furniture. Like I think of myself, if I can say this, as the character Virgil in Dante. So Dante's walking around the inferno. I'm like, I don't know what I'm looking at. And Virgil's like, this is what you're looking at. Mm. So that's kind of, yeah. kind of how I see myself, that I'm the guide. I'm helping them to be able to, to see what Shakespeare has has laid before them. So my particular so, skill set is going to be to try to try to open up that Renaissance imagination to them. Okay, so we're going to do that a little bit on the show. Obviously, we're going to. I'm definitely hoping that you're going to bring some of those ideas, those themes, and those metaphors, and like help us understand them and see them. But that you know, based just because of the context of the show, we're going to be somewhat limited on that. So I'm curious if you have a resource that you would recommend for people to turn to to help them understand that. Is there like a book out there? or a series of books that you would recommend, or is this just pure Angelina brain power? <laughs> um, it's neither. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I use my notes from graduate school and then just all the things that I've read over the years. So no, I don't personally know of like a resource that do you, have a, do you have a couple that you just love off the I top? I do, of your head? like the Elizabethan World Picture by Ian e. Tilliard. That's a fantastic book and really okay. will help you open it. Like that's my go-to resource. That's the one that I recommend. And Ian e. Tilliard, if you don't know that name, is the scholar who interacted with C.S. Lewis. Remember, they did that series of letters about how to read literature. Mm, okay. So, so that's you, that guy. Didn't you tell us recently in a conversation, like other than this conversation, something about a book? The author died in 1942 or something like that. Oh, yes. 1947. Oh, gosh, yes. It's literally sitting on my lap. That's, that's the day I'm having. Yes, Angelina, this is it's the book on your lap. Just tell us about that one. David, that's amazing. Like, can you actually see me right now? How did I know? Just for the record, no, I cannot see Angelina right now. <laughs> so what, oh, okay. tell us about that one. Okay, this is a book called The Meaning of Shakespeare by a very respected scholar, Harold Goddard. Um, I don't think it's still in print, but there are used copies still available. Uh, and this is a book that really tries to get at Shakespeare's imagination, what Shakespeare is trying to do as a, as a poet. And uh, I love it. I, I, it's the rare book that I um, can sort of encounter someone, a scholar that I'm like, you speak in my language. I, I was like, I've actually... I, I, sad admission. I put hearts in the margin of this book because I was so geekily excited about the stuff he was saying. But and so he's got some general essays about how to read Shakespeare, but then he's also got like a chapter per play. So if someone is looking for a resource to help elucidate, like what are the themes, what are the motifs, what Shakespeare trying to do here, this is absolutely your go-to resource for that. And that book again is called The Meaning of Shakespeare. It can, you can find it in a one volume or, or a volume one and volume two set. And the okay. author is Harold Goddard. Okay. Awesome. And yes, that was in the 40s. 
have either of you ever looked at? You're never. Gonna, you're not going to believe me if you haven't heard of this. Isaac Abzimov's. I, I was wondering if somebody was. Gonna, yeah. So, do you like that? Like, I think it's great. I have not put my hands on it, but I have heard of it. So, is it like just mostly like? Is it historical background, or is it more of an imaginative metaphor kind of thing? No, it's more historical background. Um, and Isaac Asimov, for those who don't know, he's a science fiction writer. He's the last guy you would expect to have written. But he actually wrote a series of fantastic medieval histories. Did he? Re- I heard he's just a complete. He's an interesting guy, guy, right? Yeah, he is. Hmm. All right, Tim, let's, let's turn to you. Um, because I'd love to hear your, your perspective is obviously going to be a little bit more uh, theatrical. And I don't mean that in a derogatory yeah. way, like I said. So... Um, when I love that you felt like you needed to explain that theatrical wasn't an insult. Because Tim's probably like, well, how would that be an insult? <laughs> well, you know, people are just like, oh, you're so theatrical about stuff. Maybe that was just something I was told when I was growing up. Tim, no, I'm no. going to personally be disappointed if you don't say the theater. <laughs> I am not going to say the theater. <laughs> but <Wait>. you did. <laughs> no, I, I've I always, whenever people say don't be, I've always heard don't be theatrical. It's never a, a, an endorsement of affection. So, okay, you're, you're going to bring that theatrical approach to it. And so for the classroom in particular, how do you bring that into the classroom? Well, I think the end goal for me with Shakespeare is I think most of my college students probably know that they ought to respect Shakespeare, but not many of them have yet fallen in love. And my goal is as much as possible to get them to fall in love. And for me, it's it's the performative aspect of Shakespeare that kind of sets him apart. Um, And what do I mean by that? I think most of the reading that we do when we read novels, when we read poems, it's a solitary experience. It's a quiet experience. We're by ourselves. Um, But I think that Shakespeare, part of what makes him come alive is that he wrote for performers. And so I try as much as possible to get my students to read him aloud and to think about, even if they're not an actor and they have no inclination whatsoever to act, to get them to think about just how those words sound in their mouth and to get them to think about um, Shakespeare as not just a mental exercise of reading, but a full body experience Mm -hmm. um, of the actor on the stage saying these words with passion with real conviction. Mm-hmm. So what I often do is um, I will ask that my students, if at all possible, when they are reading the play before class to sit together and to read it aloud. It takes a little bit longer you know, than watching a movie or just reading it by yourself, but I ask them to split up into parts to read it aloud and then I'll give them an option. Once they get to class, typically I'll ask them to write a, you know, a, almost my most common assignment is write a short one paragraph answer to a simple question about the reading. So was Socrates's argument to Crito in Crito, a convincing argument, you know, defend your answer. But with Shakespeare, I give them an alternative. I ask a question and then I give them an alternative assignment, which would be instead of answering a question, uh, memorize Mark Antony's speech over the dead body of Shakespeare and speak it aloud to the class. So, so if a student, go ahead, David. Well, no, go, you finish your thought first. If a student chooses to do that, then I will treat that recitation as the beginning of class. And I will probably start with, um, so the, the, the lines go, oh, pardon me, thou bleeding. This is Mark Antony over Shakespeare's body. Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding. Julius Caesar's body, but that would be an awesome play. <laughs> What's that? You said <laughs> Mark Antony's standing over Shakespeare's body. I was like, oh, that'd I'm be sorry. an awesome play, but I think you mean Julius Caesar. <laughs> over Julius Caesar's body. Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, that I am meek and gentle with these butchers. And so I asked them, like, well, just tell me what those mean. What does thou bleeding piece of earth mean? That one's fairly easy, but it still demands a little bit of work. That's Caesar's body. Um, these butchers, who are the butchers? Well, then you have to think about who does he mean by the, who are the butchers? So it's probably Cassius and Brutus and the rest of the assassins. So 
that when when I get them to just walk through those 12, whatever, 20 lines of Mark Antony's speech, that's a little bit of an evaluative process for me because I get to hear how quickly they're putting the language together. If they're really struggling okay. so it's, it's to a, understand partly the it's for, us, for you to assess. Partly, yeah. Partly it's yeah. that. And if they're having a hard time with the language, then I'm going to assume they're having a hard time um, digging out kind of more complex things in Shakespeare-like theme. And so, so I'll go, I'll go slow. But if they're, if they're having an easy time with the language, then I'll go more quickly to larger themes. Can I ask a question? Cause I find this really, really interesting. We, we actually have the same goal as a teacher, which is to, to make them fall in love. Um, so I have a question, but okay. So um, my sort of specialty is with students who have read something before and don't like it. Like that's my, that's my favorite setup is somebody who comes to me like, I've read this and I don't like it. Right. Um, and then, so what ends up happening invariably is once I explain to them the Renaissance metaphors, the play opens up and then every single time they're telling me, oh my gosh, now I love this play. I never understood it before, but now I get it. I love it. Shakespeare's a genius. This is brilliant. I love him even more. So that's kind of how I go. What is it that you would say gets students to that point of falling in love? Is it the language? Is it the character? Is it the just overall emotional intensity of the experience? Like, what do you think your students are connecting with? I think it's the first two things that you said. I think it's the intensity of the relationships. Um, and I think, I think also the language. And I think for some, it's the intensity of the relationships. And for some, it's the language. I think for me, it was probably the language first. I mean... And what do you mean exactly when you say the language, if I can ask that? I love how it sounds in my mouth. Ah, okay, okay. So can I point something out here that I think is really interesting? Because you talked... I mean, I don't know exactly how we put it a few minutes ago, but like the idea of... Um, well, I'll just say this. The, the idea of loving what you're teaching. Because yeah. when Angelina presents this part of Shakespeare that she loves and it helps her students love it, I suspect that part of that is because of who it is that's presenting that to them. Mm. So like Angelina's got a gift for getting those ideas across in a way that's going to help her students love them. And you have a gift for getting your part of the things that you love about Shakespeare across. And so they love the things that you love. And I bet that if you tried to teach exactly the same things Angelina does in the exact same way, they might not love them the way they do if Angelina presented it. Yeah. And the things that you help. I agree. Yeah. So I imagine that, you know, that's where the specific contexts matter. Like um, if I tried to do, teach Homer the way my dad teaches it, it would, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. You know, I'd have to approach it in a different way. Um, and that's, that's where you, Angelina, you use the word intuitive about teaching. Like there's something intuitive about the way we interact with our students and the work that's so unique to each of us. And I find that so fascinating about the nature of teaching. There's obviously specific <laughs> skills that a teacher, that all teachers are good at, right? There's just, there are specific skills that you have to have in your back pocket to be a good teacher. But it's like being a carpenter, I feel like. Like there are specific, if you're going to do basic carpentry, there's certain skills. But like one carpenter might be amazing at like making the prow of a ship and the other maybe at framing a house or something. And like they might not be both, they might not both love those things. And so that love doesn't come across in the work. I don't, does that make sense? Yeah. It totally. Make, I completely agree with that. I love that. And this is one of the reasons I get so uncomfortable with anybody that wants to come out with like standards or a list. Like this is what it means to teach 12th grade literature, right? Because- yeah. I mean, I am who I am. I'm a person, right? I have a, a skill set. I have gifts. And then I am teaching these specific students. Right? I'm not teaching imaginary students. I'm teaching these, right? And they have something that they need from me that a different class I'm teaching is not going to have, which yeah. is part of what I mean by when I say that I'm, that I'm intuitive about it. Like I just <laughs> sense what they need from me. And that's where, that's where mm. we go. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Tim mentioned uh, memorization. And before we jump out of the classroom setting, which I'm sure we'll come back to as these conversations happen, I'm sure we'll kind of compartmentalize our conversations a little bit. But Angelina, does memorization play any role in your classrooms when it comes to Shakespeare? Or do you just um, kind of, is it not something that's important to you? Wow. Uh, well, I, well, I don't mean it that oh, harshly. No, okay. No, no, no. I'll just say that I, my particular teaching situation is once a week for 90 minutes. So I am, I, I have to make choices based on how much time I have. I, I actually think memorizing things from Shakespeare is very worthwhile. It's not something that I do because I teach online. I'm limited in time. 
But oh, I, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of people memorizing poetry and memorizing parts of Shakespeare. Um, it's not something necessarily that I have the time to do, but it's always been a part of my homeschool. Yeah. Which, of course, brings up the idea of context, right? Like, I, the show is a different context than a classroom, and two different classroom settings are different. Tim teaching twice a week in a college setting is different than you teaching once a week online, or someone yeah, else teaching yeah. for 45 minutes, four days a week, or whatever in a school. Or me, if I had a, I mean, I don't, but if I had like a 14 year old student at home and we were doing one on one stuff mostly, or he was studying on his own, that's another different, uh, entirely different context altogether as well. So it, it is. If I had unlimited time, I'm sure that that would seriously shape the choices I make and I would make other choices. Okay. So let's, let's use that as a jumping off point then as a transition to the context of this show, because this show is not a classroom. We are not teaching. We're not co-teaching a classroom. Um, this is more of friends talking about books. We love finding common ground, finding little things to argue about. Um, finding ways that we're different and the things that, you know, all those different things that go into talking about literature with people who you're friends with and talking about books that you love. How do you, how do you see that kind of approach with Shakespeare being a little different than a classroom? And Tim, I'll go to you first because I asked Angelina the other question first. Yeah. Well, I look for, I look for a performance of the play before I look to read the play. I love to read the play. Um, and that, and but so that would be would, true on the show or in a classroom. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. So I asked my students, uh, I think the last Shakespeare <laughs> book that I taught was Coriolanus, which is... Uh, That's a hard play. It's, it's, I think it's the most complex as far as just the language goes. It's probably the most complex of his plays. And we're talking about Shakespeare. The man is not a layup. This is, it's really difficult. <laughs> the BBC did a version in the 80s. And I think it's exemplary. And I asked my students to watch that play. And I asked them to all watch the same version of it. Because, you know, if you get to different versions of it, then you're kind of discussing um, how one version portrayed Coriolanus versus you know, his relationship with his mother versus how the other play, the other version represented his relationship with his mother. And I think it's just good to start all in the same place. And then you can go see different productions that have different. Um, so are they watching it before they encounter it in the, in the text? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I think that I, I think and this is just part of my conviction about Shakespeare. He wrote for actors. He wrote his sonnets for readers, you know, aristocrats who could read, but I think he wrote for actors and for I think Angelina. that, for Angelina. He wrote the sonnets for Angelina. Yes, he did. Thank you for acknowledging that. Um, I think he wrote for actors. And I think there is, I think the actor is a medium between me and Shakespeare. And if the actor is good, I really think it enhances my understanding of the play. Um, I mean, all three of us are probably advanced enough as readers that we can handle Shakespeare perfectly fine on our own. But even still for me, I would rather see a Royal Shakespeare Academy rendition of the play and take their interpretation um, and, and see how they, yeah, just take it under consideration. So that's why so, I like watching a, a, a performance of it to begin with. So uh, Angelina, you, um, have said that you're, you know, you've said before, you're not, you're like, you don't love watching Shakespeare performances, whether on stage or like, that's just not how you, you prefer to, to approach Shakespeare. So when it comes to the, just the complicated language and things like that, or even just the plot, like not knowing the plot beforehand, you, would you read a summary or something like that as you were starting? I would. So, you know, I don't, I don't disagree with Tim. Obviously Shakespeare really was a playwright. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I'm not I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't entirely disagree with that. A lot of it has to come down with what do I think should be my first introduction to it. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, here I'll take the opposite view, view of Tim. I, I think your first introduction should be with the text, not with, with the actors, because actors are, are going to be interpreting it, right? And so I don't want anything to stand between me and this, and this play. Um, but, but, but anyway, like you said, yes, I absolutely, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of summaries, um, but detailed summaries, right? So I, I will read a detailed scene by scene summary just to get all like 
because there's often a very large cast of characters and you also have a lot of mistaken identity disguise motifs in Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Which can make it confusing about who is such, who. And so I, I, such I like as in to, Twelfth Night. Such as in Twelfth Night. So I like to, and gosh, and, and then the names in Twelfth Night are even similar, right? Um, yes, yeah. I mean, Olivia and Veal, I mean, that's intentional, obviously, but um, I like to just sort of get everything set in my head and then, then, and then see what Shakespeare is, is doing like thematically and with metaphor and stuff like that. I had a question for you about that. So do you, or, or Tim, you can chime in here too. Do you guys, do you guys like the, um, some of those classic, uh, retellings for kids like Mary, Charles and Mary Lambs or the E. Nesbitt children's Shakespeare? I, I do. Those are all very good. And the Charles Lamlin really is considered a, a literary work in its own right. Right. Although and he did, was a scholar. I, I keep getting running into quotes from him. Did you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by this. Did you know that the Charles and Mary Lamb one removes Malvolio, Sir Toby, and Sir Andrew altogether from the Twelfth Night? Interesting. I was actually going to say they often take the subplots out. Well, and they were worried that that was too, it was too risque for like for your impressionable minds, which maybe it is. I don't, but that's, that's just, it's an interesting, interesting I actually love that we're I actually love that we're we're talking about this because sometimes I will get questions about adaptations of of works of literature for children and whether or not that's okay. And this is typically my answer. Um, <laughs> some books, the first time you encounter it needs to be the first time you encounter it, right? Like a novel, okay? Like the first time you read Three Musketeers, it needs to be Three Musketeers. That, is, that was the intention, right? But that was not the intention of, say, like Homer, right? This is not anybody's first introduction to Achilles or Odysseus. Like the original audience knew who these people were. And so I'm a huge proponent of, no, let your kids read the adaptation. Let them, let that world be super familiar to them because that's what it would have been to the, like Homer wasn't pulling a plot twist, Achilles dies, right? Like everybody knew this. And so, and so you should know it too. It doesn't the even other, end with, like not, the book doesn't even end with the end of the no. war. Exactly, exactly. So, right, when Scholar said the Iliad, the book that does not begin at the beginning or end at the end. But, <laughs> um, but I also feel that way about Shakespeare because Shakespeare was also working with an established many, many times, established plot lines, um, working with characters that people already knew about, doing interesting things. But So Shakespeare and Homer is kind of the two places where I feel like it's really okay to read children's versions. And I'm curious what Tim thinks about this. Um, and that I don't think that anything is lost by coming to a Shakespeare play and you already kind of know what's going on. I, I think everything's to begin. Yeah. With yeah. I agree. I agree. So with that. Tim, is that, is your, is your goal in like watching them uh, performance first, whether stage or film, is that, is that kind of the goal to help give a context for the actual play itself? Uh, I'm going to say what you mean, David. I'm not sure. Well, like, is it to help? Is it the same sort of idea as reading a summary or is it purely because Shakespeare was performed originally? So, I mean, it's the latter because he was originally performed, but it's also, it's just, it's to give the first time viewer slash reader kind of a leg up in understanding. And so it is the same purpose as reading a summary. So you both agree with that. Angelina would just quibble a little bit, that, or maybe not a little bit. She might disagree vehemently, as far as I know, that, that you shouldn't watch a movie first. So can, Angelina, I do have a quick question about that. If, you're, if, you're, if one of your kids, like your son who's in college, came to you right now and he was like, I really want to watch the, I don't know, like a newer version of, like say, just say Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet or that famous um, uh, 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 Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio. And, and he had never read those. Well, plays I really before. thought you were going to say the Italian one, but okay, yes, the no. famous one with Leonardo DiCaprio. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, so when I was in school, that movie was a huge debate point. Like the the, I took courses on Shakespearean film and all that, and that movie was a huge flashpoint because some people love what they did and some people didn't. So that was just in my head. But uh, would you would you just basically tell him I vehemently think that you should not read watch these films until you have read it? Or would you say, you know what, go for it, and then you're asking but, but me a parenting sure you... decision. As the parent, I would say, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I mean, look, I have my theory of how the ideal. Right, if we'll go to Inspector Poirot. I have the ideal of how things should be. The eggs should match, right? We'll, we'll reference the last episode, but yeah, yeah. I have I have the ideal. But then there's also the real, and I am just just to be clear. Somebody's excited and wants to watch some Shakespeare. I'm not going to be the person who's like, no, stop. Yeah, okay, Here are my okay, notes I see. and let's talk about some metaphors. No, 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 no. Like go where the spirit leads you. I would definitely never tell someone who wanted to see it. Don't. Okay. So you're talking like, I mean, you're, you're kind of 
talking the ideal as far as literary approaches. Like we all yeah, know. Like I, I, I'm, I have a lot of doubts about how such someone can really understand what Shakespeare is trying to do if they can't see the words on the page. Now, some, and, and there are various reasons for that. Say again, David? Would you agree with that, that just seeing a film or a stage play would offer you an incomplete version as opposed to if you read it as well? Like you get, you, you don't have the entire picture unless you've also experienced it as a reader. Oh, what is complete? <laughs> that's the question is what is complete? Because I think- well, that's, that's fair. Maybe we should continue like, Think about that and continue that conversation. Over well, you know, Harold Goddard has a chapter about this in his book, The Poet versus the Playwright, and, and which one is Shakespeare. And uh, he, he's, he offers a synthesis, and he says that it's both. And, and, and so he argues if you only read it, you're going to be missing out stuff that you're going to see if it's acted. And if you're only watching it acted, you're going to miss out stuff that, that you're only going to catch if you're, if you're reading it. That's the case he makes. And I'm very, very okay with that conclusion. Like, I agree with him. Um, and, and he goes on to, well, he argues that Shakespeare is working on a dual level on purpose and that the, the Shakespeare you see is not Shakespeare in totality. So like he's going to be playing up the humorous things, playing up the body things, and that is for the general public. But if you really want to grasp Shakespeare, the artist, you have to read it because that is all going to be under the surface and you're not going to get it. So, so he argues for the dual Shakespeare, which I totally agree. And so I'm not too interested in public persona, body humor, Shakespeare. Like I want to get to the good stuff. So I want to read it. And I know Tim is probably like, you know, grabbing the smell and salts right now, but no, 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 not at all. Not at all. The point is, I think there's common, the, the common ground, I guess here is that you each prioritize something else, but that there's value in, in, uh, you know, in both. Right. Yes. And I will give an example of that if I, if I might of a conversation Tim might not even remember having with me because I often don't remember what I tell other people, but I do remember what they tell me, oddly enough, <laughs> which is always why when I see myself quoted, I'm like, what idiot said that? Oh, that was me. Um, <laughs> but, but I have primarily experienced Shakespeare as literature. Uh, almost exclusively, I very, very rarely watch Shakespeare versions. Um, but having a conversation with Tim about um, Hamlet a long time ago, in which he talked about the the staging of the Globe Theater and how modern staging is a black stage and it's really sort of disembodied and and mm. almost gnostic, right? Mm. Uh, and that the Globe itself was very incarnated, and that there is in the Globe setting itself heaven, earth, and hell, which, I mean, I'm sure I will talk about the, the Renaissance hierarchy and the triad and how that those threes were super important to the Renaissance man. So that made total sense to me when he said that. But then he explained how the to be or not to be soliloquy looks very, it has a different meaning if you're situated in heaven, right? With heaven above you versus the nothingness of the modern black stage. Of course, that got me super excited because I just thought, well, that's another element in which the theme is brought out, and I can see more what Shakespeare's trying to accomplish here from a literary perspective by understanding, you know, the, the literal setting. So I find that kind of stuff very valuable and enriches my own my own understanding com completely. And I really do think it's a matter of which one is our primary pleasure. I think Tim's primary pleasure is is the performance, and my primary pleasure comes from. From, from the imagination of the world. I think that's exactly right. I, th I liked Shakespeare before, but I, when I started acting, it was only 10 years ago, I had a, I had a, there was a woman who was in the play that I was in who taught Shakespeare. Her name was Sparky Roberts, and she's since become, I've mentioned her on the show before. She's a good friend of mine. Classic old school Shakespeare teacher. And she asked me to come perform a couple of scenes, and I performed a scene from measure for measure when, um, Oh, what is the brother of the nun? Uh, Isabella Claudio? Claudio is in prison and he realizes that he's going to die. And it's just the little exchange between him and Isabella. And I did it with a friend of mine, Mary, and I, it was transformative for me. I've never had more fun on a stage before. And it was a five-minute scene. And I think that was the moment for me where I went from appreciating Shakespeare to I just fell in love. And it was because I performed it. I, I had to say those words and make them understood. And they came down, you know, they came from the tips of my toes out to the crown of my head. It was a different sort of experience. Okay, I can buy that. So can I ask a follow-up question? Mm -hmm. What was it about her 
instruction that made you connect with the text? Because see, I feel like my role as a teacher is I'm that old school lady right there. Like I'm helping them connect with these words and then suddenly the words come alive. She is old school in that you don't say the word if you don't know what it means. Um, Right. So see, I would argue then, again, this is probably quibbling, that it wasn't the performance that made you fell in love. It was that for the first time you actually understood what you were saying. And see, for me, I don't, I don't feel like I need the performance to get there, but I can understand that someone else would. Well, I, I think I understood 98% of what I was saying, but I could fudge a little bit on those words that I wasn't quite sure about. Um, she would make sure that I knew exactly what I was saying. So I, I don't think it was a meaning. I don't think the meaning became clear to me for the first time. Okay, so help me understand what happened then. Did you embody the character? Was that yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, I don't even know Okay, to... so like, I feel like I'm hearing then, this is why everyone should act Shakespeare, but I'm still not hearing why I should sit in the audience and watch it. Do, do you understand what I'm, what I'm asking? Like, I'm trying yeah. to understand what, what happens to me as an, I hear you saying it's important to act it. And I, I know, and I don't disagree with that. I'm for kids reciting soliloquies. Like I'm for that. I want, an, I want you to explain to me why I have to sit in the audience and watch someone else embody. Well, you don't. Can I, can I offer something? Okay. Then? All right. Okay. T- Tim, I, do you mind? Do it, David. No, do so. it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.